The first reading is from Proverbs, chapter 8, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> Does not wisdom call and understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries out, To you, O people, I call, and my cry is to all who live. O simple ones, learn prudence, acquire intelligence, you who lack it. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to one who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Amen. The second reading is also from Proverbs chapter 8, starting at verse 22. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped before the hills I was brought forth, when he had not yet made earth and fields or the world's first bits of soil. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master worker, and I was daily his delight, playing before him always, playing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the human race. And now, my children, listen to me. Happy are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Happy is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favour from the Lord. But those who miss me injure themselves. All who hate me love death. Amen. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Who, I wonder, is the wisest person you've ever met? Have a think about it for a moment. I'm not going to ask you to name them out loud, but see if you can name one or two people to yourself. It's worth a thought. Who is the wisest person you've ever met? Okay. Who, I wonder, conversely, 
is the most foolish person you've ever met. Maybe you've got a couple of names in your mind. As we continue our journey this week through the wisdom literature of the Hebrew Bible, uh, we're going to be uh, taking a break from this uh, in a little while and then coming back to it a bit later in August. But uh, we're, we're working through some of the wisdom traditions from the Hebrew Bible. And uh, as we continue looking through Proverbs this week, we're introduced to a woman who is very wise. Sometimes scholars call her Lady Wisdom. I'm going to settle on Woman Wisdom for today. Uh, but she is the feminine personification of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Um, but if we had read the chapters just before and after our reading today from chapter 8, we would have discovered that Woman Wisdom is contrasted with another woman whose uh, name is Folly. Uh, she appears particularly in, in the chapter after, in Proverbs chapter 9. Uh, and again, some scholars call her Dame Folly. Uh, the setup here is that the book of Proverbs is offering its advice to a young man. And so it sets up these two female characters, wisdom on the one hand and folly on the other. Um, who ply this young man with their words of perception and foolishness. And his task as a young man who is trying to learn wisdom is, of course, to listen to the words of wisdom and to learn to reject the words of the wiles and words of folly. So let's just name this for what it is. It is a highly gender-laden construct that reflects the patriarchal culture in which it was written. The image of a female seductress leading young men astray, contrasted with a perfect and noble and you know, virginal and pure woman who's the kind of woman who every young man ought to want to be with. I mean, all of this uh, is as ancient as patriarchy and I'm afraid to say as contemporary as workplace sexism. And this seductress archetype is present from ancient literature to contemporary films. Think of Scarlett O'Hara to Mrs. Robinson to Jessica Rabbit. Think in the Greek mythology of Circe to the Sirens. Think in ancient Hebrew mythology of Lilith and Eve. There are no shortage of examples of women cast as the femme fatale with the sole intention of leading otherwise perfectly good young men astray. <laughs> and I'm afraid the juxtaposing of woman wisdom with dame folly is at one level just another example of this trope, and this time it crops up in the book of Proverbs. And those of us who come to this text with a post-Me Too concern about the abuse that arises from gendered objectification and vilification are right to be concerned about what we find here. It is a problematic text, and we need to own that. Ancient literature often poses its challenges when read in the modern world. But then again, 
it has given us an opportunity to talk about some of this important stuff in a sermon on a Sunday. So maybe some good can come out of our engagement with a highly gender-laden text like this one. Anyway, I'm going to plough on and let's see what else we can unearth as we plough this text. Our readings today invite us to focus on woman wisdom, who is, as I said, in contrast to folly, actually a relatively powerful and empowering female character. Like folly, she too is the product of a tradition that dates back into ancient mythology. So let's drill a little bit into the characters that lie behind woman wisdom in the book of Proverbs. If we go back into ancient Egyptian mythology, which had been around for 1500 years by the time the book of Proverbs is written, uh, we find the Egyptians worshipped the goddess Nut, the goddess of the sky, the stars and the cosmos. And she's often depicted in ancient Egyptian art as a star-covered woman arching over the earth. Other cultures contemporary with ancient Israel also worshipped female deities of great power. So we find Ishtar, sometimes called Inanna or Asherah. She was the Mesopotamian and Assyrian queen of heaven. And she actually gets occasional mentions in the Hebrew Bible. It's not usually terribly complimentary, but she was important enough to be mentioned. And I think we, we need to know it's within this wider context of female deities deeply associated with the power of creation, with the sky, with the heavens and the earth itself. It's within this wider ancient tradition that the Hebrew Bible comes in the book of Proverbs to offer us this image of woman wisdom. Uh, she's not quite a deity in Proverbs but she is clearly in that world of ancient female deities. And she too, woman wisdom, is presented to us as embodying creation. Those living in the ancient worlds of Egypt, Israel and Mesopotamia viewed their lives as participating in a great created order, a great living harmony of all things. The, the, the splitting apart of humans from creation uh, is not part of this ancient religious tradition. That's something that creeps in later and has come down to us from later traditions. But these, for these ancient theologies that inform the book of Proverbs, justice and wisdom are a matter of creation and restoration. They reflect a societal, political and economic religious order where justice and wisdom are rooted in creation itself. So if you personify wisdom, the thing that you create to personify wisdom reflects something of the deep rootedness of the nature of creation itself. And many of these ancient cultures, in fact, have just one or two words that can mean simultaneously wisdom and justice and the created order. 
all signifying that humans live fittingly in the world at one with the planet when they discover the justice and the wisdom that in some sense are deeply rooted within creation. Sounds relatively contemporary in terms of many of the spiritualities uh, that are common in our world are concerned. Rediscovering creation spirituality is a, very, is a very modern thing, but it is also, as we're finding here, a very ancient thing. And so when we meet woman wisdom in Proverbs, we find she is described in such a way as to echo, for example, the tree of life passage from the creation story in Genesis. Uh, when we find her in Proverbs chapter 3, um, we're told she is a tree of life to all who embrace her. This is putting woman wisdom from Proverbs firmly in the category of ancient, heavenly, creation-centred goddess. Even though the way she is presented in the text as it comes down to us makes it clear that she is the preeminent aspect of God's creation rather than the agent of creation herself. And just as uh, in Genesis we find the spirit of God brooding over the waters in the creation narrative, summoning creation into being at God's command, God speaks and it becomes so. So in Proverbs we find the woman wisdom presented as God's partner in creation. She is God's female counterpart in the birthing of the cosmos. You see, can't you, how the ancient tradition of an ancient cosmic couple the male and female consorts of creation that are there in the other religious traditions uh, at this time, how they echo down through the Hebrew wisdom tradition to give us the woman wisdom of Proverbs. God's creative companion, almost God's wife. But unlike the other ancient Levantine goddesses, and creation stories, which are often violent and violating of the female characters within them. The creative act described in Proverbs is marked by the loving, other person-centeredness of the creator. The Hebrew take on creation is that it is not a violent act destined for destruction but rather that it is declared good by God and destined for redemption. A lot of these Hebrew texts take their shape and form during the time of the Babylonian exile. And so you, you have to read them against the Babylonian mythologies. And of course, the, the famous Babylonian creation story has uh, the great uh, Babylonian god Marduk and his consort Tiamat. And he creates the earth by slaying Tiamat, taking her body, cutting her down the middle like filleting a fish, it says, and spreading her body over the heavens so that her blood rains down on the earth and from her blood springs life. 
It's clearly got echoes of the goddess Newt spread out over the heavens in Egyptian mythology. But the Babylonian version is deeply violent. And the Babylonians said we were created in violence and created for violence. And against that, the, the Hebrew people in exile in Babylon, they shape their creation stories to say, no, the world is created good. It is created for humans to live well in and well with one another and well with creation. And that violence is an aberration. It is the result of a fall. It is something that we can aspire to do better and differently. And we find this reaction against the violence of some of the other uh, religious traditions from that period reflected exactly here in Proverbs. And so we meet wisdom personified as a good woman, a woman who, who creates the world in goodness in accordance with the spoken desires of God. And so we find wisdom busy filling the earth with creativity, with generosity, with concern for the other, with a longing for all of creation to flourish before God. This is what we encounter within the Hebrew wisdom tradition. And it is clearly a counter-narrative against other conceptions of what it means to be human on the earth. And so we come to chapter 8 from the book of Proverbs, where we hear from woman wisdom in her own words. And for all of my comments earlier about being alert to patriarchy, and we do need to be because there's a lot of patriarchy at play in these ancient texts, nonetheless, what we meet here in chapter 8 is one of the longest soliloquies given to a female voice in the whole of scripture. We don't very often get a woman talking for a whole chapter. And so it is worth listening to her carefully. And wisdom, woman wisdom, begins by attributing her own origins to the beginning of God's creative work. She says in verse 22, The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts long ago. Wisdom here, because she was around before the rest of creation, is able to proclaim her expertise, having witnessed and even enjoyed the events of creation. The many allusions to the created order in her speech express her appreciation for the order and fittingness in all that God has made. But she also keeps making the point over and over again that the world that she saw made, that she had a role in creating, is a world that is created with order, with boundaries to keep the waters in their place and the land in its place and the heavens above and, and the earth below and so on. And whilst at one level, this is almost certainly an expression of the kind of fear all humans have of the natural world turning against us, you know, with flood or famine or fire, it also presents a theological truth that there is some deep order 
built into the world and that wisdom personified for us as this woman is the key to discerning the deep order the deep wisdom that God built into creation wisdom here is offering us the key to interpreting the world its beginnings its purpose its shape its direction she offers to guide those who will heed her words in walking wisely through life because she already knows the places that God has carved out for us. And here again, I'm afraid we do have to start being a little bit careful because there is a danger that we might conclude from this that there is some divinely ordained mechanistic path to success, health, happiness and prosperity, whereby if we do this, that or the other, the things that God has ordained as being wise, if we do those, then as a consequence, good things will follow. For many people, this is exactly what they want from their religion, isn't it? This is the way of reading the Bible that treats it as if it were a book of answers to life's perplexing questions. This is the way of approaching God in prayer, where God gives us perfect insight into a divinely personalised plan for our lives. I can remember being on kind of spring harvest type youth events as a teenager and the speaker at the front saying, God has a perfect plan for your life and your task is to find it out and then not mess it up. Let's just make sure I said the right word there. Such religion which sounds so attractive that God has kind of built into creation what you are to do with your life. Just find it out and then blessings will follow. Such religion, I'm afraid, can quickly become highly controlling because what it does is it plays to the vested interest in the status quo because those who have power can use this as an argument that, well, this is just how God ordained it. And they then justify their ongoing power and the oppression of others. We heard this in the southern states of America during the slave owning years when good Baptist Christian slave owners justified the oppression and exploitation of people based on their ethnicity because this is the way God ordered the world. And before any of us think we would be, if we're far too educated to ever make that error, I say to you that isn't true. In different ways, we all of us justify our power and privilege at the expense of others by just thinking to ourselves, well, it's just the way it is, ain't it? We have to be careful when we root wisdom in creation. 
But this is not to say that there isn't a deep wisdom that is rooted in nature and creation that we need to hear. Because there is something profoundly good about learning to live in harmony with creation. And whilst it doesn't guarantee our freedom from suffering, it is nonetheless a wisdom worth seeking. As we come to what is almost certainly the end of the hottest month on earth for at least 120,000 years, we need to learn how to live in harmony with the deep wisdom of creation. Those of you who were here last week, and if you weren't, you know, catch up on the podcast, etc. But those of you who were here last week may remember I quoted from C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, uh, which I have since discovered is going to be uh, the next book for the next Bloomsbury book group. Uh, what a wonderful book to read. It's one I come back to uh, again and again. And I'd like to just return to it this week to see how C.S. Lewis explores this idea of deep wisdom deep magic, as he calls it, within the Narnia world. In Narnia, in the world of Narnia, the deep magic refers to a set of laws placed into Narnia at its creation by the emperor beyond the sea. These laws were inscribed on the stone table on which Aslan is eventually to be sacrificed. And the deep law, the deep magic, stated that the white witch, Jardis, was entitled to kill every traitor and that if she was denied this right then all of Narnia would be overturned and perish in fire and water. However we find out that unknown to Jardis there was a deeper magic from before the dawn of time which said that if a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in the traitor's stead then the stone table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And so when Jardis makes her claim on Edmund Pevensey's life, Aslan uses this deeper magic to save him at the cost of his own life. This idea that there is a deep wisdom written into the cosmos invites us to listen carefully to creation itself and the groaning of creation as we hear it in our time is surely something humanity needs to hear and hear urgently. But this applies to us at a personal level, I think, as well as to us corporately as a church or as, as a nation or as humanity as a whole. Many voices in the Christian tradition portray life as a kind of dangerous tightrope a straight and narrow way where we dare not misstep for fear of falling off one side or the other. But the woman wisdom testifies to the harmony and order which she says can be found in a large and open landscape. Interestingly, the way of wisdom, as we find it in Proverbs, is not a list of do this, don't do that, get it right or you're in trouble. Rather, she points to freedom within form, 
to a way of living where each day is a new adventure, to be explored joyfully with wisdom as our map. The reduction of religion to rules and regulations is the opposite of what is in view here. Woman wisdom's response to her experience of creation, humanity, and the order of God's world takes her to a place of joy, of playfulness, of freedom. The end of the passage we had read to us this morning leaves us with three key images. Firstly, God delights in woman wisdom. And secondly, she dances before him beautiful chaos arising with order and form and thirdly she delights in humanity the whole poem is full of love and compassion and intimacy and exuberant joy and play cosmic wisdom assures us that the good life is one of joy and of love for creation there is no mandate here for closed set religion where you're in or you're out and if you're in you're in and if you're out you're damned and you do this and you do that and you do the other or you're in trouble that is not what is in view in wisdom here and this is then the message that wisdom shouts aloud raising her voice on the heights and beside the way and at the crossroads and beside the gates at the front of the town this wisdom is for everyone to hear it is not for the holy elects or the faithful few it is wisdom which is good news for all of us and if i were to try and sum it up which is maybe a foolish thing to try and do i think what it boils down to is the message that god is love and that god loves us and those who respond to God's love by living according to the grain of God's creation are those who then embody the wisdom of God. And as we saw last week, the key to such wise and harmonious living is a life lived in the light of what God has already done for us. Wisdom is an invitation to alternate our gaze between God and God's creation. Living simply that others might simply live. Loving God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength and loving our neighbour as we love ourselves. And it is no coincidence that within the Christian tradition, the image of wisdom personified becomes fused with the eternal word made flesh. And so to conclude, let us hear wisdom from that great gospel of wisdom. The prologue to John's gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things came into being through him and without him, not one thing came into being. And what has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overtake it. Amen.
Thank you, Simon. And now as we reflect on what Simon has said, I invite Jeff and then Judith to give us their thoughts on what we have heard. Okay, I struggled with this. <laughs> I totally admit to struggling with both the passage and the sermon. But there's something here about knowledge, but much more about the application of knowledge. It's a bit like engineering. If you have a look at verse uh, chapter 829 uh, and the description of the master craftsman, or at 9 verse 1, which is about building, it tends to push in that direction. And I tend to say, physics is God-given, economics is man-made, which do you think we can change? But engineering can explore the boundaries of God-given physics and manipulate within them. I'm a geek. I know a few, very few, female geeks, but I think this passage speaks to them. Well, thanks, Simon. You've just problematized the prologue in John for me <laughs> um, because it caused me to, that last bit of your sermon just caused me to think about what is it that we've lost by the transmutation of the image of woman wisdom in Proverbs through the more abstract Greek concept of the logos that then gets applied to the pre-incarnate uh, male Christ. Um, who was not merely with God, but was God, and was not uh, merely the, the first joyful witness of creation, but its actual agent. It worries me a bit because I think it has the effect of removing the, the feminine element in creation that you were talking about and that uh, um, brought me a great deal of joy. And I think in the New Testament that then leaves the only creation image applied to women as being that of Eve, the personification of Madame Folly. And that image gets used as an excuse for exclusion, control of women, uh, a justification for not heeding or listening to women's voices or allowing them to teach or lead and we see that still to this day in uh, the struggles in the Anglican Church to come to terms with women priests, Southern Baptist churches who are being excluded because they have women pastors and I prefer, I'm beginning to prefer the uh, alternative Lucan presentation of, of uh, the incarnation which does echo the wisdom passage with Mary being the willing and joyful collaborator in the birthing of the new kingdom and along with uh, other wise women like Elizabeth and Anna and others crying out in the gate for, for justice and uh, right order. So I think the sermon raised for me the question of where is woman wisdom to be found these days and of course there is the golden thread in scripture and church history of wise women that um, we need to listen to it takes a lot of work but we can but we can do it um, but who are the other wise women 
where is one wisdom today? Who, who should we be listening to? And the image that came to me of woman wisdom, particularly in the light of what Simon was saying about um, the order in creation was Greta Thunberg. Uh, who, but there are also, but there are others, uh, the women in history who've stood firm to defend women's sex-based rights and protections, still an issue today. And the other image that came to me was uh, the photograph that there was in the press recently of a lone woman standing in the public square in Iran without her hijab, singing in the face of uh, men who were trying to control her and in defiance of the laws uh, that were going to render her invisible. So I think the, the challenge that the sermon has given me today is to think some more of what woman wisdom looks like and how we can amplify that and also to pay attention to um, who we are listening to and looking out for, for where woman wisdom is at work. Thank you both very much. For our prayers this morning, I'm taking from um, uh, uh, an Anglican priest by the name of Stephen Brown, who was one of the writers I used when I was editing Roots for Worship. So let us pray. Creator God, incarnate in Christ our Lord, present in your spirit, we hear your summons to care for the lost, for the unloved, for those in pain or disgrace, that through even us, your healing grace may touch lives caught in despair. Loving God, friend of outcast and stranger, prejudiced in favour of those whom others reject, we ask your blessing on those banished to the periphery of community, detached and alone, feeling worthless and of no value, that their lives may be touched with the knowledge that you number the hairs on their heads and love them wholeheartedly. Gracious God, we rejoice that you are to us father and mother, and that we know ourselves gathered up into the family and household of the church, brother and sister pilgrims. All the more then, do we keenly feel for those for whom the very word family brings pain and regret. And so we pray for those who feel loss or guilt or shame or defilement or neglect or despair in family life. That the church's family stands as a sign of forgiveness and renewal, healing and joy touching tainted family lives with new hope. Living God, we pray for all whose living is hard, 
those caught in confusion, those debilitated by doubt, those exploited in the tarnished name of love, those enduring the emptiness of isolation, those tortured by guilt, those fearing to face change. That these hard lives all be touched by the transforming grace of your loving presence. But it is not enough, Lord God, that we pray for all these, but we pray too for ourselves. That we who voice our concerns for others find words of hope and renewal to speak to them. We who agonize over their circumstances find actions that channel your grace to them. Guide us, we pray, to begin to be, as you will, the answer to the prayers we offer, that lives be touched and transformed and made whole with hope reborn. We ask this in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. And now a blessing. Lord God, thank you for being with us during this service. Thank you for your never failing love and care for us. Thank you for forgiving our sins, even though many are sins that we do not even realize we commit. Help us to remember the example you set for us in what unconditional love looks like. Fill us with love, not only for those close to us, but those who are different from us. And as we leave this building this morning, we give you our thanks for your unfailing love. May your peace, which passes all understanding, be with us now and forever. Amen.